Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to another week, uh, another episode of Cross Section. Today I'm your host Alicia Edmund here in the London office. I'm joined by, I'll be polite, the wonderful Peter Linus from Northern Ireland. How are you Peter? I am well, a little bit tired but now shocked at how polite you're being. Yes, it's going to last for 20 seconds. And we're also joined by Nicola Martin, flown in all the way from Scotland. Welcome, Nicola. Thank you. Uh, all the way from Cat through to Thanks very much. Just to play on language, as you can hear, she's got a very beautiful Glaswegian accent and joining us this week for the episode and for next week. So just to support and help our listeners get to know you, as it's been a while since you've been on Cross Section, Tell us about the types of news, themes, genres you gravitate to, Nicola. I think I'm interested in a wee bit of everything, but particularly in the role that I'm in, politics. Uh, Westminster helps me keep up to date with what's going on in our world. And then, uh, as has already been mentioned, I'm Scottish, so I'm particularly interested in Scottish politics. And then I'm also interested in cultural conversations. So how do celebrities, musicians, influencers impact the way that young people view the world and uh, get their news? And so then the next question obviously is then how do you as a Christian, as somebody who consumes a lot of news, how do you apply being a Christian to, to your news consumption? The way that I take in the news is I try to give it a certain level of trust of what I am reading from uh, good sources is right, but I also recognise that there's nuances that aren't always picked up on in the news. And so I'm careful as to what exactly I believe and take to be factual before having, having a look further. And then I think often when I read the news, I can start to feel a bit panicked, a bit worried about what society looks like and the way it's going and I pause and I pray then and I pray about the particular situation that I'm reading, the the world going forward and I look forward with hope and realise that as Christians we, we ha- can have hope as we read hard news stories that there's better to come. Amen to that. And on Cross Section this year we have covered a breadth of news stories but it's been interesting to hear what one news story have you followed closely this year? There, there's been a few, but if I'm honest, probably the news story that I followed the most this year was that of Lucy Letby, uh, the woman who has been found guilty of murdering a number of babies while they were in her care as a nurse. I think for me, this story shocked me because uh, she was roughly my age when she committed her crimes She was a nurse, she was supposed to look after these children and it just made me think a lot about human nature, about sin and about forgiveness. Beautiful. Well, welcome welcome on this episode. Great to have you with us. Uh, We're going to be covering a range of stories uh, this week. So over to you, Peter, to introduce the first one. Oh, man, I'm under pressure now. So I think we're doing the Matthew Perry story, Chander Bing from Friends, he's often uh, known. I mean, he wrote his memoir that came out, I think probably about a year ago. My wife read it and found it fascinating. Friends, lovers, and the big terrible thing. He's spoken very openly about his addiction. And Matthew Perry sadly passed away this week. And that was 
uh, pretty big news. Uh, Nick, I think you were the one probably to bring the story to our attention, but like I suppose, yeah, you, what were your reflections on the on the passing of Matthew Perry? I find it really interesting. This is a death that seems to have captured people more than some other celebrity deaths will. I think partly due to the circumstances behind it, but a large part due to who, who he was and who his character was in Friends. Uh, for me, I think Friends stopped filming when I was only about six or seven, but my generation still love Friends, are obsessed with it. I watched it while I was at uni. And it does almost feel like someone we loved and had a connection to who made us laugh at times. Um, maybe it was the only thing that was making us laugh at those times has gone. And yeah, it's just interesting seeing the public um, outpouring of love for this for this man. Um, yeah, I think it is one of those stories that definitely catches you. And he, he had a kind of interesting relationship with God. He was interviewed a few times and chatted about his kind of faith journey. I think he said he prayed to God at the start that he would do anything God wanted as long as he became famous. But he reflected much later. So with that, I mean, in a sense, that prayer was answered. But I mean, he was reflecting on that as, with a little bit of humor, but also saying later in life, as he wrestled with his addiction, he did cry out and find a great deal of comfort in God on his journey and and I think a number of Christians were commenting on his story because of that. That was something that he, yeah, I suppose was something he reached out to and, and often people do in a time of crisis. And again, it's probably one of the aspects that has caught people's attention around that story. Mm. I think the the one thing that I observed from it that I found slightly quite sad how the culture had an expectation of collective grief that his fellow castmates would come out instantly and tell the world what they think and thought about his passing uh, and there was a couple of news headlines saying you know it's been two days or you know 12 hours sorry since we've heard from his main cast members commenting on his passing and I just thought there's something something odd about our culture that someone has passed and it, the first reaction is they see his fellow cast members, celebrities to us, their first point of call is to speak to the world and share their grief rather than be able to grieve privately and not give a media statement. I mean, eventually they did they did share a statement uh, and spoke about how their priority in this moment is to support one another and to value a dear friend. But I think I, I observed that and thought that was quite bizarre that expectation that in loss there is collective grief and we should all share on social media what we think and particularly those who are close to him should be making statements as the first point of call on the news that someone that they known and love for years has died i thought that was very very and strange if they, yeah and if they don't speak people are drawing kind of presumptions from it because there's this yeah. desire to be pastored through the moment we feel like oh. we know matthew Perry because he he was part of depending on your age, part of your life for a long, long time. Friends was a, a huge hit. And then people read the book and they felt they knew him because he was very open in his book. And it was kind of like a confession of lots of things in his life. And therefore you feel like I need somebody to pastor me through this moment. And there's almost a look to, well, who, who can do it? Is it the other friends from the series who do it? And that level of expectation isn't realistic. And it's a strange thing. Again, it might be a theme that we pull on a bit today, this kind of strange or false intimacy we have with somebody because we've journeyed through life over years with them on a tv show and yeah. through reading their books and and probably quite interesting in that i imagine is what adds added to his issues and his addiction issues was the way that we as a, as a society view our celebrities and put them on this pedestal and and it 
expect them to react in a certain way to things and have higher expectations for them than we do for our peers or just normal humans, I guess. So that's story one, uh, engaging in the passing of Matthew Perry from the personal to more of an international conversation uh, or at least an international topic. It's the Artificial Intelligence Summit that is taking place or conference that's taking place in uh, the UK, hosted by Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at Bletchley Park, which is actually a significant location as that is where the code breakers uh, were able to break kind of the Nazi codes during the Second World War to have this conversation around the global responsibility and the opportunities and risk with AI technology. But before we talk about the harms and the risks, Peter, on previous episodes, you've been more enthusiastic about AI and I've definitely been on a journey to take up on your enthusiasm about the opportunities what are some of the make the case for AI for some of our listeners <laughs> uh, big question there piece of it how did I become the AI apologist I you think read the reality is being human and it talks about the cultural conversations of our day and you've been researching <laughs> it for two years so to our expert uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure Expert might be overpromised, but I do think it's so. It's already part of our lives. That's that's a reality. There, there's artificial intelligence already embedded in our phones and in our computers. So in various ways, we're already engaging in it. I do find engaging with things like ChatGPT interesting. It can be helpful. There are certain areas where AI is is almost certainly going to help us in terms of medical research and in terms of processing large amounts of data. But I would want to say that I have a, a very healthy caution, I think, to it as well. So, But the reality is it is coming and, there, and it is going to change large areas of our lives. So uh, what we don't want to be doing is saying it's simply bad or, or writing it off or ignoring it. Uh, I suppose I'm wanting to say we need to get on the front foot uh, and engage in the conversation that's, that is coming and that is happening. And I would want us as faith groups, one of the big areas is ethics, um, that their AI is going to push the boundaries on that and very few people are thinking about it. And those who lead on AI acknowledge that they are not making kind of ethical decisions or don't have an ethical framework. And so they're going to look to other people to help provide that. And I think that's a really great space for us as Christians to engage in. And so ethics and empathy are the two sort of caveats I'd always have around it. It doesn't have an ethical framework and it struggles to do empathy well. And so while I want to say yes and embrace parts of it, I'm always going to have those cautions around where it goes. But I suppose it, what I'm saying in general is, it is already here. It's already part of our lives. It's naive to think it's something that's coming in the future. Uh, what we need to begin to do is really have open conversations and talk about it. So this summit is a really exciting chance to do that because it's raised some of the issues that need to be talked about and it gives us a chance to engage. Amazing. So Nicola, you're considerably younger than Peter and I uh, in age. So how do you engage with the conversation of AI and in particular maybe your peers, how do they see AI? Do they think it's a good thing or nervous, cautious? I'm sure Peter will love you for pointing out his age there. And I wasn't I, explicit. I said just... I was happy that Alyssa and I were on the same page and you're younger. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> I think my age group, it, there's a right mix of thoughts towards it. I think there is excitement. So I grew up with the internet or at least the early stages of the internet I don't really remember a time without some level of a mobile phone some level of internet so we're a 
age group that are used to technology being part of our lives and this is just the next step so there is a bit of excitement what will this look like what will this be like for creativity there's but there's also nervousness around that are these is AI going to take our jobs what are jobs going to look like in the future how do we be creative how I like photography how do photographers keep doing what they're doing when AI is doing the job for them? There's big questions around it. And I think there's definitely a caution. There's nervousness. I know that I'm definitely nervous. But it's, I guess, a big question mark. I recently went and saw the film The Creator, which is all about AI. And it was a look forward to the future by about, I don't know, 50 years, as if AI has the same role as humans, AI operate as humans, and the West was at war with AI in Asia. And I started watching it feeling so nervous of what's to come. And then by the end of it, it it put a more hopeful spin on it. I won't spoil it, but almost made you sympathize, empathize with AI. I'm not sure how I felt about that, that, that that's what a movie did to me, changed my view of it. But it definitely got me thinking about the concerns we have and how to be hopeful, but also how do we rein it in and not let it get to the point that AI can exist to the same level as humans do. I love that. A nice film recommendation. The creator, if you want to go watch it this weekend. But definitely Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is hoping to gather global leaders, tech leaders. I think the big conversation today, we're recording on Thursday the 2nd, is at 4pm between him and Elon Musk. So it would be interesting to see what that conversation uh, has to say in the conversation around risk. Currently, Elon Musk has spoken and said that AI needs to be guided in a way that is for the good of humanity. And I do think the conversation around ethics needs to be discussed. Just unpacking that a little bit more, William Hague, who was a former conservative leader, wrote in the Times uh, this week talking about the real threat of AI is fostering extremism. So he was talking about how technology is being used, particularly in conflicts, particularly on social media, disinformation. And I just want to read this quote and then come to you, Peter, with a reaction for it. He says this. The threat will not be an open rebellion with the authorities struggling for the off switch, but an insidious sinku fancy, very fancy word, that makes millions of individuals receptive to what they are told. Noah Harry has warned that AI could use the power of intimacy to change our opinions and world views. Just reflecting on that last sentence, that AI could use the power of intimacy to change our opinions and worldviews. What are your thoughts on that, Peter? Yeah, I think it's a major issue. We had Professor John Wyatt talk around this uh, a number of months ago now within some of our team in EA. He talked about its power of persuasion, and it's a linked idea because if it finds out everything I've ever said and written that's available online and takes that information and can immediately process the way I argue and seek to persuade other people and then uses that back on me, that's going to be incredibly effective. And I am going to believe I am in a kind of intimate relationship with a like a thing that's giving me information back in such a way that's shaped and so detailed towards me. And so that with combined with the kind of chatbot idea, can you can develop an intimate relationship. I mean, Meta already, I think, have 26 chatbots they're saying that would do this. They can give you life advice and all sorts of things they're trialing out. So you can imagine over time you're going to be engaging with a chatbot that knows you really well, knows your lines of argument, knows how to persuade you, 
And in that persuasion, you become, you think you're in a, a real life kind of intimate relationship with another being of some sort, a chatbot being. And, and it begins to give you the answers that you want and are seeking. And that's where it gets really risky, I think, or, you know, that's where what we need to explore. How ethical is that? Who is shaping the content? Is it simply me or is there any other force behind it? And in uh, that article, Haig gives examples of, of how this has come about with a, the person who went and found themselves looking to attack the Queen in Buckingham Palace some time ago was in, had exchanged 5,000 messages with a chatbot that had confirmed that his idea to go and uh, try and kill the Queen was a wise idea was one of the responses. So you'd imagine as that refines itself, what is possible? And if somebody wants maliciously to target that and to use that to persuade people in a different way, like the scale of that is phenomenal. So it's, it's that power of persuasion that everything you've ever done is available out there. It takes that information and uses it back against you and uses it in ways to persuade you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise normally want to do. And so that's the ethical framework and the ethical boundaries that we really need to start thinking about. And that's now, I imagine my kids, everything they're putting, if they're putting all sorts of messaging systems online, even if they're not, even if they think they're private, if they can be analyzed by WhatsApp, by Snap, by any of the, the systems out there, they can build up on a massive kind of profile of people to be able to sell, trade, deal with in all sorts of ways. And I'm sorry, there are malevolent actors in the world and we've got to be alert to that. Absolutely. And coming back to that point, you were saying about ethics and empathy. Simultaneously, there's been an interfaith leaders kind of discussion, AI Faith and Civil Society Commission that wrote to uh, the Secretary of State for Culture, I, I think, uh, this week talking about the importance of introducing moral ethics and a sense of the role of faith and religion in the framing and shaping of AI technology and regulations. Nicola, could you give a, a summary of what was in that letter and any additional comments and thoughts that you have? Yes, yeah, so the letter was written by about 30 leaders across different faith and belief or um, civil society organisations. And they're a few of their main points where they have concern over policy around AI being dominated by a small number of specialists, whether this is people that are creating AI or uh, policy makers that have more of a knowledge in it. They were saying that faith groups and civil society organisations serve as a critical watchdog uh, that should be holding AI developers and policymakers accountable. And they were calling on policymakers to acknowledge the role of these faith and civil society groups and being able to identify harms in their community. So they were basically saying we might not be experts in AI, but we have the understanding of what causes harm for people in our communities. Please listen to us. And I guess some of the things that they highlighted that they wanted considered at the AI Safety Summit going on at the moment was more accountability around AI, um, greater accessibility so that it's not just a couple of people mm -hmm. dominating the AI sector, but they use the word um, democracy democratized so they think that more people should be involved in AI there should be the space to do that and that there should be greater ethics and more emphasis placed on what the limitations should be of AI. So what I liked about this letter was that it didn't shy away from AI it wasn't faith groups saying we're absolutely terrified of AI we shouldn't use it at all there was some level of a celebration of what AI 
is and can do, which I think is really important. We're not going to lose AI anytime soon. Um, so it's good that we acknowledge the good that it can do, but also acknowledge that 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 it should be limited to that there that there are harm there is harm that can be caused by AI and that that should be acknowledged. Um, when I was reading it, I was thinking of some of the conversations that are going on at the moment about big pharmaceutical companies, particularly in America. Um, and the role that they have that no one would deny that medicine is a good thing but some of these companies are cashing out on people's struggles with medication mm. we, we see that as part of what we we're talking earlier about Matthew Perry's struggles um, and I see AI as being slightly similar in that there's lots of goods that can come from AI but we should be very cautious around a few dominant characters cashing out on things that could end up be really being really harmful for our society. And I was encouraged to see faith leaders in particular speak out about that. Absolutely. And I think that should be encouragement to us as Christians to also engage in these conversations and give the biblical story narrative of relationship consideration to others, being mindful of how we protect the most vulnerable and should be offering that very much in this conversation and debate. And I've been encouraged just how cross-section has had me reflect over the last year, moving from a position of indifference to actually I need to be more engaged more informed uh, and consider more intentionally particularly around a policy area where AI extremism and free speech will be areas of contention in the next I would imagine year two years five years moving forward but it'd be great to hear what your thoughts are tell us what you think the moral ethics should be around AI technology and regulations and you can email us at cross.section at ea uk.org uh, yes you can and i think you know I, I just the the boundaries of where this goes is generative AI, ai takes us to the next level in terms of that uh like how accountable are these systems what comes next i have friends who worked in genetics in the early stages and they always get ahead the geneticists were able to dolly the sheep was done before anybody knew that they could do that and then the ethics comes afterwards and there'll be some similarities here, like it will get ahead what AI is able to do, and particularly generative AI, which is self, essentially self-generating. It's pushing the boundaries itself beyond what even the human creators understand. And then we're playing a little bit of a game of catch up. But I actually think this is a very exciting space because people are saying we need some ethics. We don't have another framework. What does that framework look like? And in mm. essence, that takes, for me, the conversation to an event that I uh, was able to attend this week, which was called the ARC Conference. And, and this was really, in a sense, exploring what is the frame of Western civilization? To what extent do the, does the Judeo-Christian story frame so much of what Western civilization wants to live off the fruits of and deny the roots of was a kind of recurring theme of this conversation. And so if, you, if Western civilization is in decline, which was the argument being made by some at this conference, what do you need to do to restore that? Essentially, can you get back without going back to the God story that framed our understanding of human rights, of equality, of human dignity, and so on. And so this was uh, fascinating because uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, a figure of love and hate, depending on your perspective, was one of the kind of co-hosts of this event. And he was very personally talking about his own wrestle with that. He loves some of the values that we were wanting to talk about and the conference was talking about, but acknowledging that you don't get to them without engaging with the God story and, and really talking about his own wrestle, I suppose, with that engagement with that. 
and then lots of other contributors doing the same. I would say it was very much framed on kind of Tom Holland's dominion, you know, again, saying Western values are essentially Judeo-Christian values. And if you want to get rid of those values, then you need, to, oh, sorry, what put it the other way. People are trying to get rid of the God behind those values and still hold on to the values. And Tom Holland is saying, oh, that's not sustainable. If you want to get rid of the God, then you have to get rid of the values and build a whole new system. And there is no agreed form, uh, formula or story on which we're doing that. The other option is to look back and say, well, actually, this is where they come from. We need to acknowledge that. But can you have the fruit without the root? Can you claim those values without engaging seriously with who Jesus and God uh, are at the heart of this story? And it was a fascinating event. I can say more about, about how we uh, explored that conversation with all sorts of wonderful thinkers. Jonathan Haidt was there, really great on social media. Uh, Jordan Peterson, as I say, and Makita Fujimara, an, an incredible artist. Luke Smith, that's not his full name. I'm going to have to remember that. Joshua the, Luke Smith. Joshua Luke Smith did an absolutely incredible spoken word. And the response in the room, there were politicians, there were policymakers, there were Christians, there were academics, there were the whole range. There were people from lots of different faith perspectives and, and many from none. But the response to his spoken word, which really was an act of worship, in my view, was phenomenal around the whole thing. So a, a strange and wonderful intermixing of uh, faith and politics. It sure was. I mean, as an observer uh, from the outside looking through YouTube, it did it did gather a blend of people from media to politicians to tech folk. And I guess the language of ARC I'll take a step back. Ark's vision is trying to create a counter-narrative of decay and destruction. There was a lot of biblical references, iconography throughout a lot of the keynote speeches and kind of casting vision of, of what is the world that we are looking to create, both in politics, in media, in family, and, and very much trying to create solutions i guess my one slight pushback and it's not actually that jordan peterson was one of the co-hosts because i know for some jordan peterson is marmite it was more around the the strength of biblical references and you and i peter disagree on on one of the phrasing of get on board the ark now i hear that through the lens of noah's ark and very much noah's ark being a visual of what salvation is uh, and kind of you know restoring and rescuing god's people but you saw that differently in the sense of the ark of justice which is also said by my luke the king genius so yeah i think that was it was and it's sad i mean i'm not going to get pedantic about the spelling but they, they, they are the arc is, is there there this theme was a better story and they were talking about where the, the kind of arc of that story goes it's the alliance for responsible citizenship is what it stands for and they're trying to, uh, yeah, but tell a better story. And the the, well, the question they ask is, we need a better story. What is that better story? Can you rebuild? I suppose they would probably say Western civilization on any other story, or on what story are we going to do it? And they were quite um, clear each morning. Os Guinness, um, Amy Or Ewing, and um, uh, Pastor Agu were each morning where there was kind of this almost like this foundational piece that was nigh on a preach and Joshua Luke Smith just led us in an act of worship each day but then there were a mix of speakers beyond that and it was very much around uh, the social fabric was one stream then around the, the kind of res energy resources and the environment and then there was a piece around uh, the kind of economics that, that go with that and there were diversity of views in each of those streams as it came together but I think probably my one other takeaway was that there was a moment of confidence to say actually the Christian story is 
is a plausible story in a way that maybe felt uh, that wasn't in the public square five years ago in, in the UK conversation. And I think Tom Holland and Louise Perry and Jordan Peterson are, are just a number of people who have maybe shifted that. And, and each of those people had a very different articulation about their own view of faith. Some quite explicitly saying they are not Christian or on a journey or agnostic. But interestingly, it's like a, I've described it as the rise of the new theists. So we've seen the decline of the new atheists. The Dawkins et al. have kind of been pushed to the side. And, and actually, there's a rise of people who wouldn't certainly describe themselves as Christian in the traditional sense, who are saying, actually, a belief in God and the God story are credible things that we need to be talking about because of their influence upon our culture. And we need to have an open conversation that we haven't had to date. So instead of Christians shying away and saying this is a privatized faith, and we need to acknowledge that we did that and it was a bad thing that we did. We allowed our faith to be privatized and said it was a little thing I'll do in the corner privately over here. We need to publicly say, actually, this thing has changed my life. It has changed our culture. And whether you agree with the story or not, we still need to say it has fundamentally shaped our education system, our healthcare system, our understanding of human rights. All these things are profoundly shaped by the God story and you wouldn't get there without them. So even if you don't believe in the God of that story, you've got to acknowledge the role of Christianity and the God story in getting us to where we are now. And if you want to move forward in a different direction, you've got to at least be honest. This was Nietzsche's point. If God is dead, live into the fullness of that. Get rid of God and get rid of everything and every strand that continues in our world today. But people don't. There's a bit of a, a kind of cheat going on. I'll get rid of God, but keep the fruits. And people say, that's not sustainable. It won't work in the long term. So at least I think it's put it right smack in the middle of the conversation. And that's, for me, a really interesting place to be because in the middle of the current chaos, and I think there is chaos, people are more open to a conversation about the transcendent and about faith and about belief. And I think something that's fascinating from the art conference in one part of London, Jordan Peterson held a event at the O2 in London for which I went to and, and got tickets to go to. And I think what I found incredibly fascinating is diversity was in every way, shape and form. We are talking people of faith in the room, people of no faith in the room, uh, people of every ethnicity, people were there even on a date. There was a lot of date nights to go and see Jordan Peterson. And in fact, some of the kind of questions on Slido was like, I'm here, help me. How do I deal with conflict? How do I deal with this type of uh, marital issue? Looking to Jordan Peterson, like a, a guru in that sense. So I think his pull factor, he's his Marmite in the new space highly academic in terms of his engagement but his appeal is far and wide men women there was teenagers in the room and I just find that kind of fascinating that he's able to draw thousands of people into space to talk about which was yesterday's conversation what's the role of the individual in bringing about transformation in society at large and very much the whole time that I was listening to it it was kind of the love your neighbor is all that I could keep hearing over and over again in the different ways that he was creating imagery and illustration of if I am to love myself, love God first, love my neighbor, there's harmony, there's community, we build community together, there's likability, there's commonality, there's friendship, there's a, a, an idea of a nation state that we all work to the good of that uh, and the role of family in that. So it was a fascinating event Jordan Peterson meets Ben Shapiro, Douglas Murray, Bjorn Lomberg, and Jonathan Paju. It's like 
high critical political thinkers of our time engaging such a broad audience. Yeah, and people talk about our society at this moment in different ways. One is that it's post-secular. I mean, uh, you know, people say we live in a secular society, there's no space for God. We're a very bad secular society because half of our people in the UK believe in the resurrection in some shape or form. That that's not that's a very warm group of people. And they believe Jesus was a historical figure and they believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's a fascinating space to begin to explore. And when people say people aren't interested in religion, they aren't interested in theology, how does Jordan Peterson sell out the O2 Arena? How does he sell out the SSE in Belfast? How does he sell out a venue in downtown Toronto to talk about, like sometimes he goes through the Genesis text, sometimes mm. he goes through Exodus, he's got his own show talking about that. Listen, I have lots of questions about Jordan Peterson but before anybody thinks we're kind of unrepentant Peterson apologists. Not at all. He's exploring something around faith that I find interesting. But the main thing for me is it it shows that our culture is interested in that conversation. People are prepared to pay money to go and listen to somebody talk about issues related to faith. Um, that should encourage us as people who are passionate about the church. This is a great space to be talking about. And he's largely doing that around the Old Testament text, but more and more Jesus and the Holy Spirit's coming in. That's the other bit we want to absolutely put on the table and say, right in this cultural moment of chaos, yeah, you can go to Jordan Peterson and get your 12 rules to order your life. And you go to Marie Kondo and find out how to fold your clothes and make your room nice and tidy and have a little oasis <laughs> of calm. Or you can come to Jesus, who's going to give you a very different answer. We're not talking about a set of principles and rules here. We're talking about a person who changes your life. We are talking about a story that gives us a foundation story on which to build our lives and our communal lives. And we are talking about an invitation into community people in terms of the local church. Those are three incredible things to be offering our world in this moment. So I think this is one of the most missional moments, which is why we're doing cross-section right at the heart of this, because we believe this is the heart of where the public square is. And the answers being offered around us are not very convincing at all. I think we have a much more confident story to talk about and coherent story. And we want to give people the confidence to do that and to do that well. And on that note, we are closing out this episode of Cross Action. <laughs> um, so, folks, we've loved you joining with us. Um, hopefully you find that interesting and helpful today as we have covered a wide variety of subjects. As always, we want to be signposting people towards Jesus right at the heart of this conversation. It's called cross-section for a reason. Right at the heart of this is the sacrifice that Jesus made. He found himself at the heart of the public square, so much so that the Roman authorities of the day and the religious leaders of the day wanted to see him crucified. And We want to submit and sacrifice ourselves in the same way right at the heart of the public conversations. Always, always to signpost people towards Jesus and something beyond ourselves. So bless you all this week as you wrestle with the new stories that are out there. And we will see you again soon. Be blessed. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.